Father, we thank you for the scriptures again tonight and thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, the one who inscripturated the revelation in canonical form and also the one who has preserved it down through history. And we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts so that we can apply this to our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to uh, just review just a little bit in the beginning here making sure that we have it for those who follow by tape. Um, I understand we do have a tape from last week in spite of the sound system doing its thing, but um, I just wanted to clarify some vocabulary here. Once again, uh, just remember these two words, futurism and, and preteritism, preteritism. Um, these uh, terms should be preterists uh, these terms refer to where the majority of the prophecies in the Bible about the return of Christ occur preterists obviously place it in, in the past AD 70 is the favorite time among modern preterists and uh, then if they may, some of them may have a few passages left over to describe the second advent of Christ. <clears throat> but the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, the Mount Olivet Discourse, and the book of Revelation are associated with A.D. 70. So it's past, preteritism. <clears throat> Futurists are those who hold that Matthew 24 and Revelation are yet in the future. And as we said, what we're dealing with now is that if we are futurists and if these passages occur in the future, then we have a coalescing of two plans of God, actually three plans of God. And it's that that causes the modern debates. It's not easy. It's hard stuff here. So it's not like people are deliberately trying to be antagonistic. It's part of, as if we had lived during the uh, late 1500s and the 1600s, people had massive disagreements about how you're saved. And that went on for a couple of centuries until finally the lines were drawn between Rome and Protestantism on that issue. And it took a while to do that back and forth. Well, that's what's happening here. And the preterist issue basically concerns three programs. First, from the days of Noah, you have the sons of Noah going out and forming nations. That's the table of nations in Genesis 10. <clears throat> Those nations have a destiny all the way into eternity because in the book of Revelation it says that worshiping before the throne of God are those people who come from every people group, every language group, every nation. So <clears throat> the nations have a destiny. and their place in the future thousand-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the place of those nations in that kingdom is also part of a plan of God that has to be worked out. Then we have, beginning with Abraham, the Jew, and we have the nation Israel. And the nation Israel had as its function in history, basically three things to do. 
It was the nation that God entered into contractual agreements with called covenants. Didn't enter in, well, he did with the Noahic covenant, the ecological covenant, but <clears throat> most of your biblical covenants, the redemptive biblical covenants, are through Israel. So Israel becomes the contractual party to God's plan of salvation. Contractual, we mean. It has terms in it that just like a mortgage agreement or anything else, it's a contract, series of contracts that exist. Then we have, down in here, the origin of a strange new thing called the church. And the church has a destiny, and, and so it goes into the Millennial Kingdom. And of course, this age prior to the Millennial Kingdom, back here, this thing, right, this period of time before the thousand-year period, that is the tribulational period. And futurism and the schools of thought we're going to cover are trying to deal with these three plans of God as they penetrate through that tribulational period getting into the kingdom. And we said that uh, when we started this whole thing that there are certain milestones that you want to watch for. The program of Israel from time to time has been clocked. That is, it's locked into a calendar. And it is a program of a nation. Nation has a place that exists, it has a government. So these plan, this, this redemptive plan of God has to do with this thing called Israel, which is a nation occupying a place, real estate, that has law and that has a functioning social order under these contractual agreements, the Mosaic Law Code and so forth. That nation we have studied is not sinless. That nation is sinful just like everybody else is sinful in the human race. And so God, in order to work with them, has to get them in shape. And in the pages of the Old Testament, woven into the contractual terms, is this statement that there will be a time of wrath and trouble. Jacob's trouble, it's called. It's not Gentile trouble. It's called Jacob's trouble. And it is specifically a period of time, seven years to be exact, because that's what Daniel says, seven-year period during which something happens to Israel. Well, let's put it in the big picture. What do you suppose happens to Israel? If Israel is um, uh, being worked on in that seven-year period prior to the tribulation, uh, prior to the millennium, and she's going to go into the millennium, then you would think that whatever's going on in that tribulation period helps determine the state of Israel, and that's true. It's a time of purging, and it's a terrible time on Earth because never will there, never has there been, and there never will be again, a time like this period. That is the time in which Israel is to be purified to become ready to be the, the pivot nation in the Millennial Kingdom, to be ready to accept the Messiah. And when she gets down to the end of this period, this tribulational period, she will say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And at that point, when they're looking for the Messiah, the real Messiah, 
When they're looking for that, that's when the second return happens, or return of Christ happens. So that's the program of Israel. And you don't really have to know too much of the New Testament to know this. Matthew 24, oh, the one thing you do want to know, is that Matthew 24, spoken by Jesus to the disciples prior to Pentecost, is an exposition of the program for Israel. This Matthew 24 passage. Jesus is expounding, filling in details that are there from Jeremiah, that are there from Israel, I mean from Isaiah, that are there from Daniel, that are there from Amos. That's where Jesus gets this. Now Jesus is adding things to it, but there's no startling new truth in Matthew 24 that isn't already there in the Old Testament. In fact, there's stuff that's in the Old Testament that isn't even in Matthew 24, such as the resurrection. Nowhere in the Olivet Discourse is resurrection discussed. So, that being the case, then if that Matthew 24 has to do with Israel, and if the book of Revelation correlates with Matthew 24 and the book of Daniel, then it also follows that the book of Revelation has largely to do with Israel. And it follows, too, that, of course, the nations are going to be judged here. And what Jesus does say is a, is a clarification of a theme of the Old Testament. And that is, what Gentiles get to go into the kingdom? The answer is, those Gentiles that submit to the authority of revelation coming through the nation Israel and who help during this time identify themselves with Israel rather than with the Antichrist. That's the sheep and the goats judgment that happens there. And some Gentiles are going to go into the lake of fire because they sided with the Antichrist and didn't want to go along with this rebellious movement, which is the believers during the tribulational period. So, then comes the church. Now, the church started as a subset of Jews, which was a subset of the nation of Israel. So, who and under what circumstances the church started? Well, hopefully we know that because we've gone through it for last year and this year. The church is defined to be those believers who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ since the day of Pentecost. There was not a church during Jesus' day. He said, I will build my church. Hadn't been built yet. After the, the first wave of the apostles, the church had already been built because in Ephesians it says the church has already been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's a past tense. So the founding of the church went on for a certain period of time uh, in the latter part of the book of Acts and during while the epistles are being written. Well, this, new, this creates a new entity. And as we said earlier in the previous chapters of our notes, there was a bifurcation that the Jews remaining inside who did not like the Jews that trusted the Lord Jesus, there was a social rupture that went on throughout the whole Mediterranean. And believers particularly Jewish believers who accepted the Messiah were persona non grata with the Jewish synagogues after about 130 AD. There was a split here. 
so that Christianity emerged then, not as a Jewish sect any longer, but on its own. And Gentiles joined in, much to the chagrin of, of Jews. There was a big argument in the book of Acts whether Gentiles should become allied with Israel prior to becoming a Christian and being allied to the church. And in Acts 15, we have that grand council in which it was clarified, no, Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. Gentiles can become Christians directly without first becoming Jews through circumcision and so forth. So that was all clarified. So now here's the problem. We've got nations, we've got Israel, we've got the church. Now what we're studying now is theories of how this is organized inside this tribulation. And the key in, in wading through all this is to ask yourself which view is most consistent with the big picture of the scriptures. So we're going to start, and we, we started last night, with post-tribulationism. Now, post-tribulationism, in its modern form, I'm not going to bother with the historical forms. That's, if you want to study church history, that's fine, but this isn't a class in church history. So here's the seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week. It starts, according to Daniel, with a covenant that is made with a nation. Halfway through that period, it's three and a half year period, the, the Antichrist, who makes this treaty with some Jews, desecrates the temple. And he does so in such a way that it's a parallel to something that already occurred in the past. Thankfully, we have an event in the past that we can kind of look at and see what this, was all about, what this is going to be like. And that is Antiochus Epiphanes who, before the Romans actually controlled Israel, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated Jewish areas of sacred worship. And he did so by, by idolatry, by deliberately f breaking Jewish taboos. Um, he, for example, would sac make Jews sacrifice pigs, deliberately, make them do it. Um, he, he was, he was a, apparently a very well-liked individual, the Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a politician, uh, key politician. His whole program was to develop one culture. And he wanted to amalgamate the different people groups in one culture, and he got irritated that the Jews were the only nonconformists. They would not conform to his political agenda of uniting the, all, everyone in this one country kind of order, this one social order. So he decided to crush the Jewish opposition by hitting at this religious root. Very smart. He recognized that you can't put them down unless you attack the religious foundation. And so he did this, and of course it caused a big revolt and so on. But there's going to come a future time that makes Antiochus look like a Sunday school picnic boy. Because the real Antichrist is going to come. He's going to be a world-renowned politician. And he is going to work this treaty. There's going to be a treaty here made. And beginning, the clock starts again. Because remember, with Israel's program, frequently in history, she has a clock. The clock stops. The clock starts. The clock stops again. And so on. And here's where the clock begins. The clock, here with the hands on the clock, it starts counting down at the time that that treaty is made with Israel. And it's going to go for seven years. And at the end of this period, we have the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will crush 
the Antichrist and his program. Now, several things follow from this. And that is, and by the way, the Lord Jesus tells you that, and he says, and he talks about the, this, this desecration event. If the Antichrist is going to desecrate the temple, it follows that prior to the Lord Jesus returning to earth, there's going to have to be a temple there somehow. Now, nobody knows how, but somehow there has to be a temple there because there's got to be some place that can be desecrated. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to cleanse. So there's the, the, the key actors in this role need a stage in which to perform this drama. And one of the, the set pieces on the stage is the temple. There's not a temple anywhere. It's not a temple somewhere in the middle uh, the, of Europe or Africa. It's a temple that is located on the temple site in the city of Jerusalem. Now this is going to happen on the authority of the Lord Jesus and every prophet of the scriptures. It doesn't make what matters, whether the United Nations likes it, whether we like it, whether the Europeans like it, whether the Africans like it, whether the, or the Asians like it, it doesn't matter. It's going to happen, regardless of what men say. We don't know how it happens, but it happens. So that's the tribulation. And that's the story, largely, of Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation. Now, the question is, where's the church in all this? So, we have to look at these programs. And the church, um, if you look at what happens to the church, by the way, this is Israel coming up to that point. This period of time, this seven-year period, is an extension of, back in Deuteronomy 4, the very word trial or tribulation is, is there. And this period, the theologians call it, let's get our vocabulary now, the tribulation. It's not arbitrary. It's because in the Old Testament theology, looking forward, there would be a time of tribulation. Now, understand, and I'm going to use a capital T for this, tribulation is not equal to this word. Tribulation in the sense of all of our trials. From our health, from our economy, from our personal spiritual travails, to the horror, sorrow and heartaches of life. That's tribulation. That's not to say that we don't live in tribulation. The world, you shall have tribulation, Jesus said. But understand there's a difference between the proper noun, tribulation, and its connotations in the light of the prophetic program coming out of the Old Testament. It is applied by theologians to Daniel's 70th week, this seven-year period. Now, there's another proper noun called the Great Tribulation. That is used in the scriptures. It's not just theologians putting a label on it. It is actually used by Jesus and the prophets. And the Great Tribulation refers to this three-and-a-half-year period. That's the Great Tribulation that begins. Why is it called Great Tribulation? Because the first part of the Tribulation isn't as intense as the second part. As you can see in the book of Revelation where you have these judgments that keep getting worse and worse and worse. More intense. So Great Tribulation is a technical term found in Scripture. No debate about this. This word, tribulation, in the general sense, is a label that theologians have attached 
to Daniel's 70th week. It's, it's a handle. It's like Trinity. Trinity's not in the Bible either, but it's a wonderful handle on a, on a set of doctrine. Okay, that's the tribulation. Now, if you forget all this a moment and look at the New Testament epistles when we're looking at the church, the church is looked upon as something that proceeds on down through history until Jesus, who said in, in, in the Upper Room Discourse, he said, um, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you that you may be, dwell with me. And it's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, Thessalonians, um, 1 Corinthians 15. Talk about this thing where the church ends in this thing called the rapture. And the rapture is equal to two things. It's equal to resurrection and transformation. And they both occur at the same time. Now, the idea of the resurrection is, is a, not new with the New Testament. But the idea of instant transformation is in the sense that you go directly into resurrection body. Uh, not all rapture apparently does that because we have certain little individual raptures in the Old Testament. We have Elisha is, is raptured, we have Enoch is raptured, and so on. People laugh and say, oh, well, the rapture is a silly concept. No, it isn't. Look, look at what happened to Elisha. Look what happened to Noah, um, uh, Enoch. So we've seen this happen before, except this time, instead of going into some kind of natural body, whatever they're in, soulish body, as a holding thing prior to the resurrection, um, this is going to be directly to the resurrection. So the church has this, the rapture. Then the church has a second thing that has to happen, the Bema Seat Judgment, where our human good is purged from our records, and we're left with that which was genuinely done as unto the Lord, out of proper motive and a response to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And Paul said, you know, he, Paul couldn't tell, you know, in his own life what was true. And that's why the Lord has to do that, sort that out. And the third thing is there's going to be a marriage supper where the bride and groom are married. And this marriage supper is spoken of in the book of Revelation. It involves the church. And then the church comes back to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the two kind of programs. The Gentiles, by the way, are judged at the end of this in the sheep-goats thing. Their plan uh, looks like this. The Gentiles go on down through history, and they come down to this momentous time. Uh, they come to the church age. They pass through the church age, and the individuals in Gentile nations are being asked to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they come down to this period of tribulation here and the question is going to be how do they respond to persecuted Israel and you have this judgment of the sheep and the goats and the sheep go into the kingdom and the goats are rejected that is a natural judgment there's no resurrection apparently associated with that so now we come to post-tribulationism what post-tribulationism does it says that here's the seven weeks Here's the covenant. Here's the return of Christ. The church is to parallel Israel. In other words, Israel's going through the tribulation. The church goes through the tribulation. So Israel and the church go through the tribulation together. And the church is raptured here at the end of the tribulation. Hence the name to this school of thought called post-tribulationism, meaning 
after the tribulation. The rapture occurs. Okay, now in the notes, we started last time through post-tribulationism. And the first point that um, I say on page 126, the first, uh, first thing that post-tribulation has to do, post-tribulation has to show that the rapture and the return can be coalesced into one event. And not just coalesced into one event that spans seven years, but coalesced in one event that happens at the end of the tribulational period. So, post-tribulationism, PT1, says that the rapture, the rapture and the return, I should say maybe this, the rapture is included as part of the return. And this happens at the end of the tribulation period. Now, to see what has to see the, this whole thing, that's why I've constructed Table 9 on page 127. Because this table lists for you the features that we see in Scripture of the rapture and the return. Now, understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that the post-tribulationists don't distinguish between the rapture and the return. They do. But they argue that the two events are so unified they cannot be separated one from the other. The rapture is part and parcel of the return. Now, in order to do that, they have to minimize differences that occur between these two events. And that's the, that's the crux of this whole issue, is what do you do with these differences that show up between the rapture and the return? If there are differences here, then they can be separated and considered as separate events. If the differences don't really matter, they can be combined. But as long as there are unexplained differences, it opens the door to bifurcating them into two events. And, and it's not like people want to be hair splitters here, but think about the first and second advent of Jesus. They were, it was sort of mishmashed together in the Old Testament. But it was enough of a difference. So the rabbis had a real problem with this. And one of the rabbinic solutions in the Old Testament was what? They had two messiahs coming. They had the son of Joseph, who would be the suffering messiah. And then they had the son of David, who would be the glorious messiah. It was their way of trying to figure out how do we deal with these two strings. And they properly recognized that you couldn't just combine these two things together in one. There had to be two things. Now, where they erred is they made them two messiahs rather than two sequential acts. So what we're saying here, and by way of analogy, is, is the rapture and the return, again, an illustration of what we had in the Old Testament with the first advent of Christ. Namely, we've got parts here that are not identical. They're speaking of two different things. Now, that's what Table 9 is all about. Uh, so let we, I think we worked our way through the first three rows of this table. So just to, again, to review. In the first row, we're speaking about um, the resurrection issues. And on the left side of row one, I quote 1 Thessalonians 4, and notice the wording. 1 Thessalonians says, Only and all 
those in Christ are resurrected or translated. In the context, the people who are resurrected are those, quote, in Christ. Well, now, that is a signal. Whenever you see in Christ in the New Testament, it's not talking about Old Testament people. It's talking about New Testament people, right? Every time. Look it up in concordance. It's always talking about New Testament people. So that's why on the left side of that chart, the first row, we're talking about the rapture has to do with those who are in Christ. That's not speaking about the Old Testament. That's in Old Testament language. Now, coming over on the right side of row one, the resurrection, when Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, where he's telling them the whole final days of Israel, he doesn't even mention the resurrection. It's not there. The resurrection is not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. And Old Testament resurrection reference speaks of resurrection of some dead saints, but not of translation. You can go back to Daniel 12:2 and Isaiah 26, which are the Old Testament passages dealing with resurrection. And there's no, no information there about any transformation. It's just information about a resurrection. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't appear to mention it in Matthew 24. Now, there is a passage in Matthew 24, which we'll get to, that post-tribulationists try to say is a resurrection and rapture. And we'll get to that passage in a moment. Okay, second row. What happens when this occurs, this rapture event? Well, physical union with Christ in the air, with all church-age believers in resurrection bodies. No mention of inauguration of the kingdom on earth with natural bodies. No details in any of those passages that are written to the churches. No exposition of the Messianic kingdom, role of nations, nothing, none of it. It's all missing. It's talking about all believers going to be resurrected and, and, and be with the Lord Jesus physically. Now you come over on the right side of row two, and you have the judgment of nations with everyone in natural bodies and the inauguration of the kingdom on earth. Come, those of you prepared for me into my kingdom. So, there's a difference here. One is resurrected, and the other ones are not. Because the kingdom, again, think of context. The word kingdom has to be loaded with meaning from where? Where did the word start? Old Testament. And then the Old Testament talks about death, even in that future kingdom. So these people have to have bodies that can die. Well, if they've got resurrection bodies, they can't die. So we've got a little problem here. These two events, you've got a little problem trying to mishmash them together like this. Third row. Christ comes in blessedness to deliver his body into eternity. That's the step. There's no intermediate kingdom thing in view. And he comes to rescue. He comes to save. He comes to deliver. He comes to bless. There's not an antagonism or an animosity or a judgment happens here. He comes because he has made a place and he is coming to receive us. See, that's why these passages are used to deal with death. Because they're friendly. It's not a fearsome thing. It's a friendly thing. It's a warm event. It's a happy occasion. There's joy in this. But you come over to the right side... And we're talking about serious judgment here. 
See, there's a theme that's not present in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14. Now, all of a sudden, Christ is talking about he comes in judgment against the nations, including judgment against Israel. And you don't find him coming in judgment against the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, that passage on the left side. Now, there's, there's uh, imagery here. And I want to turn now to Matthew 24, 29. After the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be moon, and so on. The son of the son of man will appear in the sky, and then it says, "The heavens and earth will pass away." And uh, it says that in um, verse uh, starts to make a comparison of the flood. Verse 37: For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, evidently, by the way, from reading this text, uh, Jesus must have been so ignorant of historical geology that he thought, uh, didn't realize there shouldn't have been a global flood, but he goes talking about a global flood anyway. Um, until that day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, in verse 39, who is taken away? Believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Okay? Now, verse 40 and 41. There shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, this symbology shouldn't be a big mystery. Now, I'm, I'm mentioning this verse because that is where the post-tribulationists put the rapture. For them, that passage speaks of the rapture, the taking away and so forth. The problem is, it's 180 degrees off. Here's why. Remember the passage when John the Baptist came to introduce the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, he says... His fan or his shovel is in his hand. Now, it's a picture of the guy harvesting grain. And he's shoveling the grain up with a wind, and the chaff flies off and blows away, leaving the grain. Doesn't, the grain doesn't go away. The grain stays. That's what the whole point is, get the chaff out of the grain. So again, in John the Baptist, who picks up the exact Old Testament theme before the kingdom can come on earth, unbelievers have to be removed. So the removal here is a removal of unbelievers. They're removed from the kingdom. God and Jesus is not going to start his kingdom with unbelievers. He's going to start it all with believers. So, back to the chart. Christ comes in judgment against the nations, and he gets rid of unbelievers. On the rapture side of the chart, he's gathering the believers to him. 
and the unbelievers are left on earth. And this is a radical thing. This is a, a, a big difference here. You can't just slap these two events together and harmonize them that easily. And people who do that have to resort to all kinds of shenanigans with the text to make it happen. That's why the next row in Table 9, that's where I explicitly point this out. And I refer you there to Matthew 3.12, where the same kind of idea happens. The unbelievers are removed, and the believers are kept. The chaff is removed, and the wheat is kept. Now, the next row, Christ comes for his globally dispersed church. So what you see when you see these rapture passages is Christ, the, the focus of all those rapture passages is that Christ wants his church. And he comes to get his church in resurrection form physically. Church, you know, to be absent of the body is face to face with the Lord. That's true in our souls. We don't have our resurrected bodies. Now what, what we are like in the intermediate period is another whole study in itself. But this is when Christ says he's going to come and, and get the church in resurrected bodies. Now, on the right side, it says he comes with his church back to the Mount of Olives. So, uh, Acts 1.11 says he will come just like you saw him. And in Revelation 19, he's bringing the armies of heaven with him, clad in white, just right after the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it appears then that he comes with his church in the return. He comes for his church in the rapture. Next line. The church is, in the left side of the chart, the church is delivered from the wrath of God. Now the wrath of God is a term out of the Old Testament. And it referred to this period when all this stuff is going on period of the wrath of God. And so the church is to be delivered from this. Now there's a debate now, obviously, the post-tribulation says, well, if the church goes through the tribulation, how is it delivered from the wrath of God? Well, they have answers for that. We'll just get into those. But I just want you to see from the chart first that you've got to handle it. You've got to come up with something to handle this. The church is supposed to be immune from the wrath of God. Right side of that row. The entire globe, including believers dwelling in at that time, experienced the wrath of God. Believers and unbelievers. Who experiences the earthquakes? Earthquakes aren't caused by men, they're caused by God. Who is it that's breaking the seals here in the book of Revelation? It's the Lord Jesus. What are the seals? The authorization to begin judgment. The authorization to claim earth. They're his. It's his property right. So all the people that are squatters out my property I've come I'm going to claim it okay finally last line on table 9 the church is to look forward to physical union with Christ and there don't appear to be any intermediary signs I've listed almost every passage I can think of in the New Testament where, the, where we're told to look for the return of the Lord and isn't it strange that apart from the Second Thessalonians passage, or First Thessalonians 5 passage, there's not one of these that's talking about any intermediate events. We'll return to that point later. On the right side of the chart, 
Numerous signs are associated with the tribulation and day of the Lord prophecies. There are signs to be seen. Signs that ought to be seen. Signs that indicate his coming is clear. Now, it's that area where people who date set get in trouble. Remember I introduced two vocabulary words at the beginning tonight? Futurist and preterist. Now the people who date set are actually mixed up into a third word called historicists. The historicists blend the church and Israel together so that the clock that is Israel's is applied to the church in an allegorical fashion so that days become years and they go through all this computational routine to try to compute when Christ is going to come back. The only how they do that is that they're borrowing the clock passages that have to do with Israel, bringing them over onto the church now, in this age. The clock's running now. That's why they can predict when Christ is going to come, they think. And the first guy to do this with precision was William Miller, who predicted that Christ would come back in 1844. Not too good a forecast. But that was the origin of what we now call today the Seventh-day Adventists. That's what the word Adventist means. Those are the people who, who got with William Miller up in New York and said that Christ can kind of all got up on a hill and so on this particular day that was supposed to that was the end of it and then we've had a few other guys write a book The Rapture what, Gimden W some guy wrote it and he's coming in 18, 1988 and then of course the most famous historicist in our lifetimes the people at Waco uh, the, I even forgot his name Karish or Karish or whatever his name was um, known in theological circles as the Waco from Waco but basically he was the guy who that they thought that, that the end of the world was coming they thought they were in the tribulation that's why they had arms and guns and people couldn't figure out what it was doing and of course the you know the theological depth of our modern journalists is so shallow they couldn't even they had to go up to drive up to Dallas a couple of them and talk to Dr. Pentecost to get a clue as to what Koresh was believing Pentecost sat down told them they're historicists and this is why he believes what he believes and so forth and it explains what they're doing but had they understood what they were doing, they wouldn't be alarmed or they wouldn't have, you know, maybe they would have operated a little differently, but whatever. Now, we're coming to a second point. The first point I've made about post-tribulationism is that the rapture and the return are not necessarily the same. There are enough differences in these two sets of passages to argue that they can indeed be separated, that they are referring to two different events. The post-tribulationist has to prove that they cannot be distinguished, and that's a very hard argument to pull. He's in the position of having to say not merely that they're the same, but in order to make his case, the post-tribulationist has to prove that they can't be different. That is difficult. And I do not believe any of them have ever proved that. Next point. The second problem with the post-tribulationist is, and if you're sharp, you've already seen it, if every believer is in his resurrection body at the end of the tribulation, who goes into the kingdom? 
Where do we get all the natural bodies? Where do we get believers in natural bodies to populate the kingdom? If they all, the rapture's happened, there aren't any around. Because who's left after the rapture? Unbelievers. Well then, where are the believers coming from here? Now, what they try to do, on the top of page 127, the tribulations attempt to generate, they've got a problem here. So they're going to try to generate living believers in natural bodies. And they use uh, several techniques to try to get this to work. One is, they attempt to generate the living survivors from the tribulation of natural bodies and the 144,000 witnesses of the book of Revelation who are, are apparently Jews because they're broken down 12,000 to each tribe of Israel. So they say, there's the nucleus. They're not really believers, so they're not raptured. Um, but, but after the rapture, maybe they believe. And that's why they can survive and become the nucleus of the kingdom. The problem, as I point out down below, is they're all males. I have a little t hard time unless somebody cloned a female baby or somewhere along the line carrying along the suitcase. You have a problem here trying to reproduce anybody in the millennium if you're going to start it with all males. So that hasn't proved very useful. The next th source that they try to use to get natural bodies is from repentant Jews in Matthew 24.30. So if you look at Matthew 24.30, People are going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. They're going to see because in the post-tribulation idea, the rapture's habit happening when all this is going on. So they see the Son of Man and they, they repent. But they repent too late to be caught up with the church. So they're kind of left there. Well, the problem with that is Matthew... rapture, according to their position, then they're still on the wrong side of the rapture, because they get raptured if they're believers. So that doesn't work. So what's happened here is most, most post-tribulations today try to use, there's a, if you work out all the numbers from Daniel, when Christ comes back, there's a 75-day period of cleansing prior to the Millennial Kingdom. And they try to say, well, somehow, during this 75-day period, um, believers happen. The problem still is that the great white the sheep and goats judgment has occurred here, on the other side of the 75 days. So again, this is a problem here. So this is one of the habitual weaknesses of post-tribulationism, trying to get the kingdom started um, with people in natural bodies when they don't appear to be around. Next page, page 128. This is the third problem with post-tribulationism. The third problem with post-tribulationism is that, as I say in the first sentence, it insists that the church remains on earth during the tribulation. The problem with that is reconciling the scriptures that immunize the church from the wrath of God. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I hope you realize as we go through these how complicated an issue this thing is. 
and why it is that it takes a lot of men studying a lot of years to put this stuff together and to thrash it out. One person cannot do this. It, it has to be thrashed out by, by a lot of people interacting with each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. It says, We are to wait for the Lord Jesus from heaven, whom the Father has raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we could repeat it in chapter 5, verse 9, and give you the references there. Well, if the tribulation is a time of the wrath of God, has the wrath of God in it, and the church is immune from the wrath of God, how do you keep the church going through the tribulation? Well, here, here's how they do it. So if you follow with me now, I'll read you to show you how the post-tribulationists tried to get the church inside the tribulation, but protected from the wrath of God. The church positionally distinguished itself from both Israel and the nations because it started as the community of Jews who did receive the Messiah and because it contains Gentiles who have submitted to the authority of Israel's God. Therefore, the church has no purposeful connection with the tribulation. The tribulation is designed to accomplish things on the unrepentant nations and on unrepentant Israel. It's not designed to purge the church. The church is getting purged all the time. Jesus said, the world hates you. I mean, look at around. We've lost more Christian believers in the 20th century than all 19 centuries ago. I mean, it's atrocious. It takes a Jew, I forget his name, that um, Colson works with. I can't think of his name now. But he, he's going around saying, you know, you, you Christians, you evangelical Christians don't realize you're the new Jews. And by that he means you're the people going to be fed to lions. You're the people going to go to Auschwitz next. You know, we had we Jews had our time in the 19th century. It's time for you Christians, or the 20th century. And the way of looking, the 21st century is going to be the Christians. Post-tribulationists have to resort to various schemes to explain the presence of the church inside Daniel's 70th week when it isn't part of the first 69 weeks. Some writers, now here's how, how some try to do this. Some writers try to eliminate the wrath of God from the seven-year period and confine it to the moment of Christ's return. So let's draw a picture of what this is and try to understand what's going on here. What they try to do is say, here's the 70-year period, here's the rapture, here's the return of Christ, and the wrath of God occurs in this little narrow time period here. So the church is protected from the wrath of God for a day or so. The wrath of God between, because remember, the rapture and the return in post-tribulation is, is together. Same act, coming down, so forth. Because remember, their view is that Christ comes down from heaven, the church comes up to meet him, and then he comes to earth. Not much time for wrath of God in there. So, that's one technique, obviously not too satisfactory. Others try to invoke the protective method. I think the more intellectual post-tribs use this. 
they try to invoke the protective method of the church for the church that God used to protect Jews in the Egypt during the Exodus judgments. They'll say, well, you know, God can protect, uh, the church can go through the tribulation all protected, because after all, God protected the Jews in, in Egypt when he was judging Egypt, didn't he? Sounds like, a, you know, you've got a biblical precedent. It's a lot better than that first solution. And so the problem with that is that it fails because during the Exodus, no physical harm came upon believing Jews. Remember? Put the doors. Remember the Goshen, the, the this difference that the judgments were made? Yet in the tribulation, believers get killed. Judgment does fall on the believers in the tribulation according to the book of Revelation. So there's a little problem with that. Plus the fact, if you'll turn to Revelation 3.10, the structure of that verse seems to negate any attempt to protect the church during this tribulation period. In verse 10 of Revelation 3, and by the way, there's a serious um, verse division problem here. And uh, we, I don't have time to go through this, but it's that first clause in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, uh, appears in some editions of Greek to go with verse 9. It doesn't even belong in verse 10. That's a whole other discussion. Um, I will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, what does he say? Look carefully at the grammar. He doesn't say, I will keep you from the testing. What does it say? I will keep you from the hour of testing. The time period of testing. You see the point? The Lord Jesus is saying, I will keep you from that hour. I will keep you from that historical time period of testing that is to come upon the whole earth. So this tends to knock out the idea that the post-tribs have of the fact that you can have the church going through the tribulation um, with the wrath of God. Okay. Now let's go to the fourth point down page 128. Finally, a fourth problem for post-tribulation concerns sequencing the beamer seat judgment of the church, the marriage feast of the church, and the return of Christ to the earth. If the rapture doesn't occur until the, re the return of Christ, now what happens to the beamer seat in the marriage? So, the beamer seat in the marriage... Um, running out of things here. Um, if you have the rapture that occurs simultaneously with the return. Now you've got the Bema seat and the marriage supper to deal with. Where are you going to put these? So, um, continue to read. If the rapture doesn't occur until the return of Christ, then the Bema seat judgment and the marriage feast must follow the return. Since the church would not have been removed for these events until after Christ descends to the earth. However, several texts in the book of Revelation indicate that the marriage supper occurs in heaven before the return of Christ to the earth. If you read the sequence of events in Revelation 19. So, Revelation 19 puts 
The bema puts the marriage supper, which we presume the bema seat has already happened because they have white robes and so forth, cleansed, that this thing is happening before the return. Now we've got everything squashed together. And it seems like these things occur boom, 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 like this. So those are some problems. It says, theologically, one would expect that prior to the marriage feast, the Bema judgment would have had to occur for the bride, quote, to have made herself ready. Moreover, in addition to the requirement to be made ready for the marriage supper, there's the requirement to have already received reward-based assignments for the coming kingdom by the time the church returns with Christ to satisfy the kingdom. Okay, next, next page. We conclude that post-tribulationism, along with preteritism, fails to properly relate the church to the tribulation and Old Testament pro prophecy. Preteritism fails because it continues the same interpretational methods of Roman Catholicism, that is, an all-male or post-millennial perspective. Post-tribulationism, while adopting a reformed hermeneutic for eschatology, errs in not being sufficiently consistent with that hermeneutic. It stops short of logically integrating its exegesis of New Testament prophetic passages so as to produce a coherent view of the distinct historic roles of Israel, the Church, and the Millennial Kingdom. Okay. Next week, we're going to deal with the three-quarter tribulation view recently popularized by Rosenthal, but it's actually a, this was originally started by a man by the name of Van Campen, who was a very wealthy Christian publisher. Um, if you have mutual funds, you might recognize that name, Van Campen. But whatever, um, this is the next view that I want to call. I'm working my way from one end of the tribulation to the other. This is not sequential or chronological. But this is a view that was very popular in the 1990s. It somewhat waned as people have looked at it more carefully and found certain discrepancies that weren't at first apparent in the, in the viewpoint. So we'll work with that next week, if you'll read ahead. And then the next position we'll deal with is mid-tribulationism, which is, a, is an older position. Father, we thank you for our time here tonight. We thank you that your word does give us the idea and the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ will not let this history go on and on and on. This fallen world with death, sorrow, heartache, misery, war, disease, pestilence, uh, disaster after crisis after disaster, that this all will come to a, to a head and it will be done with and finished. We thank you that as personally having trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can participate in the final chapters of history and see your creation vindicated, your plan for humanity brought to fruition, and that your plan will not be thwarted by evil, will not be thwarted by Satan, but will progress to issue in a very fantastic future. We thank you that we can be part and parcel of that future. We thank you the entrance to the kingdom is only by trusting in you, not in our works, not in our human merit, not in religious gimmicks, but placing our trust completely in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified by His grace, justified through the work that He did on the cross for us. We did not earn it, we did not deserve it, and we can receive it only by faith, not by works.
We thank you the Holy Spirit has made these issues clear that there's really no excuse in our own day for people being confused at that fundamental point. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, the tape system and the PA system worked great tonight. Thank you, Tommy. <laughs> you must have said special prayers back there. <laughs> okay, um, we'll open up for some questions. Um, try to keep them on to what we've been covering. Yes. And he left it in the Lord's hands. You had a verse. I remember you were breezing through that night. Do you happen to remember that passage where he said that? No, I, I, the two passages on the Bema seat are 1 Corinthians uh, 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, but somewhere at the end, it's in one of the Corinthian epistles, and I can't remember it right now, but he makes the point that um, he, he's getting, what he's doing there, it's interesting. Uh, and and I, I, I think this is a good point, Donna, to, to, to uh, discuss here for a minute. The thing that you have to think about all the time we're talking about this, and granted, what we've done tonight, because this is a framework and I'm looking at structures here and moving on, and I'm not going verse by verse, and I'm not, this is not a class in exegesis, it's really not even a class in eschatology, but um, we mustn't look, look uh, beyond the detail of when those passages happened, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, understand that they were originally addressed to believers in a local church that were having practical problems. And that's why you've heard me facetiously from time to time say that this guy Paul was so deep in the Word of God that I, I often amused that you couldn't talk about brushing teeth without bringing the Trinity into the discussion somewhere along the line. Um, when there were local congregational problems, he didn't approach it like we would. Uh, let's hire a counselor or, a, you know, let's uh, get an advisory board in here or something. He'd immediately plunge into some deep theology, and I, I, I bet you, Dallas Donuts, if we had our people, most of the average churchgoer, in Paul's day, they'd say, where is this man coming from? Because they couldn't, couldn't grab the fact that you can go from a practical problem immediately into some deep thing about the second advent of Christ. And the, uh, the inability, the inability to see the links is a sign of our very sloppy faith, I think. And to get to Donna's question, uh, it's interesting, I can't remember the passage, but I can remember the situation that spawned his discussion. What Paul was dealing with was the tendency every group of Christians have, uh, that, and that is we want to be able to judge the other person. And the problem with doing that always is that we always pit our strong area against their weak areas so we come out ahead. Oh, well, we don't, I'm not afflicted with that. And, well, maybe the other person is, and the other person doesn't have sins of pride like you do, you know? So the point that Paul's saying is that there are some things about judging other people that are best left in the Lord's hands. That's the context of that thing.
So, in the other place that's interesting is where in Corinth you were getting believers so angry at each other that they were going out to the local courts for lawsuits. And he says, what is wrong with you people? Don't you realize, this is astounding revelation, don't you realize that you are going to be judging angels? Can you imagine that? I don't know whether the angels squabble or what, or this is going back to the Satan's fall or what, but he's saying, you, you, you Corinthians, of all churches, you know, geez, Louise, here's the church that have more problems per square foot than any other church in the New Testament. And he's saying, you know, you guys, don't you understand what your, what's in your future here? You're going to be judging angels. So get in shape. Learn how to do it. Have you ever heard a, you know, a theological reasoning like this? It's, it's very foreign to the way we think today. And I think uh, it shows something of our separation from the New Testament text in depth. But all these passages, every single one of these passages, not the book Revelation, I'm not talking about Revelation, I'm talking about Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, James is talking about the second advent of Christ. Watch when you read those texts. And now maybe we talked about the second advent as you read your Bibles and you come across those verses. You'll, you'll stop and say, wait a minute. What is he talking about here that brought that into the argument? Why did he refer to the second advent in the middle of this discussion? And see if you can back out the logic of why, why he connected the second advent of Christ with whatever it was that he was talking to. And if you'll do that, uh, it'll be far more beneficial spiritually than worrying about every little detail of post-tribulation and pre-tribulation, amillennialism, preteritism, and all the rest where you can get, lose the forest of the trees. Um, or lose the trees of the forest here in this case. Um, so understand the context, the practical context, which in our Thursday night class here, we really don't have time. That's one of the problems here is we, we're not... If, if I was going through this verse by verse, I'd, I'd do that, but I can't because that's not what we're at about. But anyway, Donna, that, all those questions were raised inside, most of them, by the way, in Corinth, with all the problems in that congregation. I did have another question. Why don't most of the post-tribulation people just cut out the millennium and go into eternity? Because it, it just seems like such a pain to try to yeah. squeeze everything in before the because I, I think, Donna, if you look at the structure of post-tribulationism, when I first started studying eschatology many, many years ago, I realized that there are certain positions that are like magnets. They attract each other. And they're stable. It's pretty unstable, I think, to be a pre-millennial post-tribulationist because of that problem. I think it's a lot more stable, if you're going to go that way, to be an amillennialist because it cleans things up for you. You can put the rapture and the return together and then forget about the problem. Millennium is not going to happen anyway. But, of course, once you do that, now you've bought into the entire hermeneutic of Rome and, and, it's, and it's, um, its allegorical interpretation. And you've kissed off the literalness of the Old Testament text. So the price to pay for that. But it does give you stability in the sense that you, you're not constantly trying to dig around and solve this body problem. Are you just full of questions tonight, Don? We were talking about this today. It's about the temple. How strict 
I have no idea. We don't know what the cubit is exactly right now, unless there was some artifact left from that period. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that, that there's. You look in the Bible dictionary and the different cubit sizes and debate, but it doesn't seem to me like that's an insurmountable problem. All they would have to do is get a get us artifact and, and calibrate. But as to what they're doing, all I can tell you is that the Jews that right now are serious, dead serious, about setting up the temple. And it, it, the state of Israel, by the way, doesn't like this. Right now, the mainline Jews in Israel aren't buying into that because they realize you, you're playing with a nuclear bomb here. Because if you thought the Arabs had a problem with... Uh, remember how the Intifada started? Remember the act of the Intifada? when the Palestinians just tore up the place. Remember what triggered that? It was Sharon walking onto the Temple Mount. Just, just walking on the Temple Mount. Now, can you imagine if that started the Intifada, what would happen if they started bulldozing for the Temple? See? So, I think it's going to have to come in a weird way. That's why you've heard me say that in the Gulf War, I was hoping that Hussein's Scud missile would take out the Al-Aqsa Mosque or something. And it, you know, it wouldn't be Jewish caused. It would be the fools did it themselves. And they may well do. I think it was George Bachman said that he read an article where the engineers are concerned now because um, the Arabs, uh, not all Arabs, the Muslims are trying to make the case that the Temple Mount was never occupied by Jews. In order to make that case, they're bulldozing away layers that have Jewish artifacts trapped in them and ruining a lot of archaeological digs that haven't been done because you can't get to them because they're on their side. The ironic thing, however, is that in all this bulldoze action that's going on and scraping away signs and evidence of Jewish occupation, is they've weakened the retaining wall that holds up the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, this could be a classic case where Esau does his thing again of in trying to, his hatred for the Jew is so strong that he winds up destroying his own temple. Now, I think that's sort of, I mean, how politically else can you envision? I mean, I'm not trying to say that's the way God's going to do it, but knowing what we know politically, uh, it seems to me that the only way you're going to get a temple on there to get rid of the Muslim thing is the Muslims are going to have to do it themselves. Yeah, earthquake could be. Something like that will happen. But I, I can't imagine Israel just walking up there and doing it. And the nation doesn't want to do it. They don't want to start another thing. They're happy. I mean, they got their wailing wall, and they'll put up with that. But the Jews, to get back to your question... The Jews who are dead serious about this, I mean, they're talking about going back and they're studying Ezekiel. They're studying what kind of things the Levites are supposed to do. They're trying to identify which Jews today have the genes of Levi. Um, they're working with a red heifer, trying to get, so they get the right. I mean, it sounds to me like they're being very literal. They're not allegorizing the Old Testament, if that's the way they're thinking. So, very interesting group. Um, to go back to your um, discussion about the, the Gentile nations going to the sheep of the goat judge and all that going into the millennium, is there ever a discussion in scripture of which of the Gentile nations, you know, or is it 
I think Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Footsteps of the Messiah mentions some Old Testament texts that give you the sense that um, some of the nations round about Israel will be excluded and some will be included. For example, Egypt will participate in the Millennial Kingdom. Not all Egyptians, but there'll be a subset that can be identified as Egypt to come. And um, but I, I, I can't tell you, Joyce, about specific passages, but I think there are some that kind of border onto that area. They're really prophetic portions, I, as I recall. Very few, by the way, excluded. It's, it's nations that have such intense hostility to the Jew that it seems like their hearts are hardened during the tribulation, and there's just no people within those nations that are going to be Jew-friendly throughout the tribulation, so they're excluded. But nations will come into the Millennial Kingdom. How? I mean, the Bible just doesn't satisfy our curiosity. It just says Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron, that the Millennial Kingdom will be a time when Satan is put in jail. And, and by the way, once that happens... See, here's something else that's going to be interesting. Let's project ourselves forward in time. And let's pretend we're teaching history to kids in the Millennial Kingdom. And you've got a class of students, and you're talking about the history that by then you will be in. So you're talking about the history, and you know, the climate is benign. Um, there aren't any wars. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. The quote, the one Bible verse that's in the UN. Um, and you, you have world disarmament. You have peace. You have world government headed by Jesus in some way, ruling with a rod of iron, so he has some sort of authority somehow and some force to it. You have people living tremendously long lives, healthy, and yet uh, un they become unhealthy if they sin. So there's a one-to-one -one relationship unlike today. Now, that's the kind of history that you would be enmeshed in and your students would be enmeshed in. Now, put yourself in that kind of a classroom and look back on our history. Our history is going to appear unbelievable, unbelievably cruel, unbelievably violent to people who are raised, who know nothing but this benign climate, economy, health, um, the terrain, geography, wonderful, the temple where you can go see God. And they're going to look back on our history and say, what a bleak time that was. I mean, these people, they didn't have a temple. Uh, they didn't have any Shekinah glory to look at like we can. Uh, they had to have armies. They spent billions of dollars funding these weapon systems and all the rest of it. And uh, they were always fighting one another, and there was wars and rumors of wars and all the disease and pestilence. Good grief. We're so blessed today, we don't have any of that. Now, one more step. After you've made that contrast in your mind, um, think about why. And why is because Satan and his demon hordes are in jail. And their absence from the historical scene is evidenced 
geopolitically, and so forth. Now work your logic machine backwards. If that's the case, then what about our history today and the things we see around us? That is demonically affected. The spirit of this world and the hordes of demonic forces that are constantly aggravating. In Isaiah it says, you deceived the nations, Satan. You deceived the nations. So who is it that breeds wars? Who is it that breeds uh, upheaval? Who is it that breeds catastrophes? Satan has something to do with all that. And his absence makes the world a paradise. So don't pass off the demonic forces as so spiritual that they don't enter into physical things. They don't cause physical things. Well, yes, they do cause physical things. Okay, that's a question that always comes up uh, with premillennialism, and that is the question about why does the sacrificial system apparently return in the millennial kingdom? And why is there to be bloody animals? Well, first, the bloody animals in the Old Testament did not save. They were a picture looking forward to the Lord Jesus. And the bloody animal sacrifices started where? Eden. They started in Eden. The first thing. Think, think of the fact that Adam and Eve never knew what death was until they had to stand there and watch God himself kill an animal in front of them. Blood on guts and they had to watch this animal die. And then God did, you know, he, 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 he killed this animal and then he, he tore off their skin. I mean, you know, it's, it's too bad to see these animals by the side of the road. But here God killed this animal, skinned it, and said, you put these on. Now, I don't know whether he cleaned the blood all off of it or what. Maybe he didn't. Now, why did he do that? Why did he, uh, that wasn't righteousness, but why did he have to do that? Or he didn't have to, maybe. He could have put it in a row. But why do you think God went through this bloody drama because the animal didn't save Adam and Eve. Christ saves Adam and Eve. Why was the, why was the animal killed like that? To, it may, it, it's a symbol, but it's, it's a gory symbol. To, it's a hard thing to have to watch. And it, it's a graphic, and because it is so hard to watch, God wants us to be shocked. It's a shocking picture of what sin causes. And I believe that he restores that in the millennial kingdom for several reasons. One, as in the Old Testament, even though those sacrifices did not save in a soteriological sense, they were necessary for cleansing in the social sense. You were not a participant in that society if you had not partaken of that ritual. Sorry, you're excluded. That was the law. Now, it doesn't mean the salvation, you know, in your soul, but it meant that you had to live and your and your whole social life and schedule was was hanging on this. So I believe that that's brought back for that reason in the Millennium Kingdom. It's, it's going to be some ceremonial cleansing type thing. 
because remember we go back to a national thing today we don't churches in a nation then it will be there will be laws civil laws that are somehow integrated with this ritual where you will be excluded from doing certain things in society if you don't participate in that and second of all who's going to be born into the millennial kingdom that needs salvation you have thousands of unbelievers born every baby that is born from the time of for day one of the kingdom is going to be born as an unbeliever so they've got to be one to, one to the Lord just like people are one to the Lord today the, the earth will be full of the knowledge but they still have to trust personally just like we do and in that situation again it's this horrifying bloody type of thing and we, it's, it's repulsive I mean I, I, when I first became a Christian I can remember liberal Christians telling me that one of the things they despised about fundamentalists was that you had a bloody religion and I remember going home after that first time I ever heard it and I remember thinking about that as to a bloody religion yeah it is bloody but it's bloody for a reason because sin is bloody and it's to show the horror of sin and until we get serious about the horror of sin and that's the shock to do to get us to think about that then we're not going to appreciate salvation so I think there's lots of reasons for, for the restoration I don't have a problem with that it did not save in the Old Testament it is not going to save in the, in the millennial kingdom we have a benign version of it called communion but remember where did communion come from Jewish Passover say and it was a covenant but we get very uh, shall we say anesthetized by communion what it's really snowing oh yeah I know we forecast that um, the yeah it's white disaster um, but in any case the communion is so benign when when we take this cup of wine we forget the history behind that this is the what of the new covenant the blood of the new covenant and it, you know it's grape juice so we, we drink it but we forget what what's all wrapped up with that and I think it would be a lot less um, anesthetic uh, aesthetic if, if we had to sit there and watch an animal get sacrificed which the people will have to do in the millennial kingdom Apparently, all during the, uh, the millennial, millennium. Yeah, cause if the prophecies of that temple, the priests are doing that sacrificial system. They're going to try to revive it during the tribulation, but but uh, no, it's going through there because all millennials will always raise that question. I mean, it's always raised about premillennialism. I've never heard a premillennialist say that it's not going to happen. They just defend it, but they never say it's not going to happen. Okay, go out and see the white stuff.